Right, as you um, are aware, um, we are doing a mini-series um, called The Shepherd Kings. Last week and we did a, or I did a sermon um, on King David, the first shepherd king. And now today we move to the shepherd king. Um, slightly irreverently, some might think I called it OMG. He is with us, Emmanuel. I think it's probably the only time you can rightly say, oh my God, because indeed it was God there present. Now see, there had been 400 years of silence since the last time God has spoken to his people via the prophets. And the last recorded words were found in the book of Malachi, which is in the Old Testament, and that was written around about 420 B.C., after that, there is a period of violence. Empires coming and empires going. And now the imperial Roman Empire is in place and had been so for about 25 years in its, uh, in its full glory. And Caesar Augustus is ruling on the throne and he issues a decree that everyone should register and go to their hometown because as he called the first census. And thereby he fulfills a 600-year prophecy. And by doing so, he forces a young couple to make a rather unpleasant five-day journey from Nazareth, which was their hometown, to their family's town, to Joseph's line, the city of David, the first shepherd king. And this is... And in this part of the story, we see four key people, plus the angels. Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and of course the baby Jesus. So let's look at the, uh, the four and then the angels briefly this morning. And if we can turn in our Bibles to Luke, so you've got your Bibles open in Luke, we'll look at a couple of things that we can see about her. I think the first thing to notice about Mary is that although she is young, she has been seen by God, and that God recognises her and has a role for her to play. And in Luke 1 and verse 28, we see the angel turning to her and talking to her, and in verse 28 he says, The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. So she is highly favoured that she has been chosen. She must have been bemused by these words. How can a young girl in the middle of nowhere have a visit from an angel with such an amazing words that the Lord, in the Lord's eyes, she is highly favoured. Favored. And in verse 28, we see that these words trouble her. I bet they troubled her. Why me? Of all people, why me? I'm not being trained for this role. You know, and God can call you to a role. He calls you to a role because he will equip you to that role. You might not be qualified for it, but by, by him choosing you, you are totally qualified for that calling. And in verse 30 and to 33, we read these words. 
But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Wow. Just imagine it. You're not even married yet, and yet God has got this great commission and has chosen you for this role. And in Matthew 1, verse 42, we find out that she is blessed. And then in Luke 2, verse 19, there's a number of instances, and they all appear in the book of Luke, um, where people ponder what they've seen. And we have these wonderful words in verse 19 of uh, chapter 2. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So God knew who he had chosen, what deep person this young girl was and what she was capable of, and how, instead of just reacting to it, that she just thought about it and took it on board, trusted God. She did go and see her cousin and was reassured by the, uh, the story that she uh, came across there. But she is prepared, she is ready, she is trusting. And then we've got Joseph. You know, the, the, the Bible's pretty good at um, talking about what happened. So Joseph went up and he talks about Matthew, about him being a decent um, chap and uh, observer of the law. And because he was that kind of person, he quietly wanted to put Mary um, to one side and to reduce the disgrace for her. I wonder if those words kind of hide a little bit about what really goes on. Can you imagine being a young guy? You are you are betrothed to each other, so you've committed, you're engaged. It's it's more than just an engagement that we have in our society. This is a commitment that you will get married, but you're not married yet. And then suddenly he finds out that Mary is pregnant, but he knows he wasn't. He's not the father. He hasn't been with her. And then she comes up with this story about messiahs and angels and virgin births. I mean, for crying out loud, what, what are you doing to me, Mary? I loved you, and I, and I still love you, but I don't understand you anymore. I don't know what's going on. But God sees that, doesn't he? And God sends an angel so that he knows the role that he's got to play, because if you read the Bible narrative, he had already got to the decision where he was going to sort things out and he was going to follow a certain route. So he had already gone through the torment in, in his own mind. But he was still a loving man. You, you don't read the anger here, the frustration here. He still loved Mary, but he's, he must have been confused. How could this be? What's going on? And so he plans to divorce her, to shield her from public dis disgrace, because he still loves her, but he can't be part of this anymore, because I don't know what you've done. I love you, but I can't be part of this. And then God comes to him and talks to him. Interestingly, God talks to Joseph three times in the Bible. Every single time God talks to Joseph, he talks to him via, um, via a dream. With Mary, God talks via angels. 
With Joseph, it's via dreams, and three times it's recorded. You've got the wants here, where he finds out that Mary is with child, and he is to take her and to be the father, or the husband. The other one is that um, they are to escape and to go down to Egypt, and then the last one is to call him back out of Egypt to come back. So those are the three times. And it's that last time, is the last time you actually hear Joseph's name ever mentioned. He is mentioned as the parents once, you know, when Jesus goes into uh, into the temple and he's educating the wise and he's only 12 years old as is his time. You hear of the fact that the parents are there, but it is only the parents. You never hear his name. And when the wise men come visiting a little while later than after the birth, again, it's Mary's there, but you don't hear of Joseph being there at all. Not to say that he wasn't out there working, but he wasn't part of it. So he is obedient. He's humble. Unlike for a man to take a centre of stage in the relationship and in the narrative, here, his wasn't the central role. It was humility. It was one of provider, to provide for his family, to provide for the young child as he grew up. He was a carpenter, and therefore he was going to labour to provide and he was a comforter. The characteristics that God needed for this person, he had already seen in Joseph. The person who would do the right thing, even driven by love, even at the most awful of circumstances, God saw who Joseph was. And then Joseph disappears from the biblical narrative, and you don't hear of him mentioned at all thereafter. And then we come to the shepherds. If you remember last week, we, we learnt that shepherds were, by definition, what's known as unclean. And because they were there dealing with the animals and therefore they were defiled. And yet, who is it that God first goes to to tell them about the good news, about the fact that the Messiah, the long-form Messiah, is, has been born? It's to the unclean. And if ever there was a symbol of what Jesus was there for, that is a key moment. Jesus came for the unclean. He didn't come for the perfect. He came for us, the sinners, the people who let him down, the people who do wrong, the people who know that they do wrong. And the people that will know that they have a need for change. And these shepherds are terrified you know, if you're confronted with heavenly hosts, I, I guess when you thought you were going out there just to look after sheep for the, the night and suddenly you're going to have this descending heavenly host come across you, you are going to be terrified. And they were absolutely terrified. The news that they heard was a news that would change not only them, but would change the course of history. And once they've heard that news, like we should... They are in a hurry. They're in a hurry, first of all, to go and see him. So they hurry on down to see the long-awaited Messiah. And then, like us, they are then keen to tell the news that after 400 years of nothing, he has come. He has promised his Messiah has come. The Lord is here. And so after seeing him, they go out and they go and tell everyone that they encounter the good news. 
They are full of praise. They are full of amazement. For those of you that have become Christians, think of that time when you first encountered God or God first encountered you and how exciting and how life-changing it was. That's the experience that these people have got here. Their life will never be the same because they have encountered God for the first time. And then we have Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And I will, I will give you five key things. If you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10, and we will look at a couple of verses, and then we will quickly look at the angels. So Jesus is the Good Shepherd. So first of all, in verse 10, in chapter 10, sorry, in verses 3 and 4, we read these words. <clears throat> the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out all of his own, he goes in ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. You see, he is our, first of all, he is our example. He does exactly what he should do. He shows us the way that we should live. In verse 4, it says, when he calls his own, they follow him because they know his voice. They know his voice and they follow him because he is trustworthy. So first of all, he is our example. Secondly, he is trustworthy. And then we have Psalm 23. You don't need to turn to it because I'm sure that you know it all very well. Psalm 23 is David's psalm. It's one of his many psalms, but it's the one that most people know, and it's the one which is very common. But look at these words. The Lord is my shepherd, I will not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside quiet waters. <coughs> he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the paths of right for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <clears throat> the one thing that comes out of that verse, those verses, <coughs> excuse me, I did um, do a lateral flow this morning. I'm okay. <clears throat> the one thing that you see there is God's provision. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He guides me along the right paths. I will fear no evil. You prepare a table for me. You anoint my head with oil. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Provision, 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 provision. God provides. If you wonder where your future lies and where things are going to go right when they seem to be going wrong, turn to God. He will provide. He will be with constantly throughout your life. David writes this psalm towards the latter days of his life where he's reflecting upon the goodness of God throughout his life. And he can see God's provision. If I ask Samuel, for instance, has God been with you throughout your life and can you look back at those examples? I'm sure you can echo the words of David, can't you? But then we move on to some, some key points in uh, chapter 10. Um, 
And verse 11, 15, 17 to 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I will lay down my life for the sheep. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, not only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down according to my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This command I receive from my Father. The role of this good shepherd, ultimately like any shepherd would be, would be to put his life at danger. Jesus, however, puts his life down and takes it up again. And he talks about it and he's underlining this for his disciples. The purpose of why he came wasn't so that he could teach them all about heaven, but it was to die in our place so that we can be provided for, that we can have eternal life. Verse 14, as I come to the end of Jesus, of, uh, Jesus, the Good Shepherd. Verse 14 says, I am the Good Shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. When you cast your mind to what we read at the very, very beginning of this service this morning, um, when God creates the world and then through the sin comes in and mankind's relationship with God is shattered, what God wants is a relationship with us. This is what he did. This is why he came. He wants to put right that which we made wrong. He wants to pay the price so that we can be united with the Father. And therefore he came to die. And that was the purpose of that baby boy was that at one time in the future, 33 years later, he would hang on a cross and die. And then three days later, rise from the dead, triumphant. And the angels, not surprisingly, get it completely right in verse 14. Because in verse 14 it says, Glory to the God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. So two key things to notice from that one. To those whom his favour rests... That's those people that have heard what he said, accepted his free gift, and have taken him as their saviour. That is who we're talking about here. This is not peace on earth, full stop, but this is peace on earth to those whom his favour rests. But peace, what does that mean? Years ago, you'd have had Miss World, and the Miss World, they'd say to her, what do you want? Oh, I want peace in the world, she might say. And that was one of the things that a lot of them would say. They want this, this, and this, and happiness, and whatever, and peace in the world. That's not what this is talking about. The peace that we're talking about here is, is the exact opposite of what existed. What existed before Jesus came wasn't peace. The world was at war with God, and the world is at war with God even today. You just have to look at the news. You have to look around you to see that the world is at war with God. This is peace for you, between you and Almighty God. That's what this peace is all about. And this peace was freely given 2,000 
20 odd years ago when Jesus Christ was born to Mary in a little manger in the back end of nowhere because God chose to come in a humble way to save us mightily. So maybe this Christmas, for the first time ever, you'll be able to see that little baby as that saviour and for you to have peace with God.